0: Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question, Who the fuck am I? Hi, I'm Nikki LaCroce and you're listening to Who the Fuck. On today's episode, I'm sharing the mic with Mac McGregor. And Mac is a transgender activist, author, and speaker, as well as educator living in Seattle and providing gender and LGBTQIA diversity training for companies and organizations of all sizes across the globe. Mac also co-founded Positive Masculinity, a nonprofit that works to dismantle toxic masculinity and helps masculine folks work to create a healthier model of masculinity for all people. In addition, Mac has also authored a book of the same name, Positive Masculinity, which includes exercises designed to help readers unveil their most authentic selves. Welcome to the show, Mac. I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks, Nikki. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so I'm really Just looking forward to this conversation, I have been since our last call, I feel like you create such a seamless discussion and easy environment to ask questions that I think a lot of us want to understand the answers to, but don't know if it is, I want to say safe to ask, but I don't mean safe in the conventional way. I think we fear judgment, I think we fear sounding ignorant, and I also think A lot of us just are ignorant, whether that's willful or unintentional, just based on sort of societal circumstances. So I would love to just dive right in and let our listeners get to know you a little bit before we go full force into sort of the masculinity topic and how that has become really the linchpin, I think, for a lot of what you're doing. So can you share a little bit about your background and ultimately how you landed in the position that you're in as an educator and speaker to to help create more awareness for people in the trans community.
1: Sure. I have been teaching since I was 16 years old. Actually, I mean I could probably count before that, but it was in martial arts because I started the martial arts at six years old. And I found my soulmate, I call it when I found the martial arts, which which you know, I was from a I was a kid from a really dysfunctional family. And so the dojo, which is the place you train in the martial arts school, became the healthy place for me to be and my healthy family. And so I was literally the kid they had to kick out and tell to go home when they had to lock the doors every night. (laughs) I just ate it up.
0: Yeah, I love that. I mean, you really transitioned that passion for martial arts into a very lengthy career as a professional athlete on the US karate team. So, yes. How did you go from, you know, this child full of that passion to that path ultimately and how did that help you cultivate really who you are now?
1: Yeah, well, let me back up a minute from starting the martial arts at 6 and, you know, I was in my first test of life when they look at a little baby in the hospital and it's usually a nurse who writes what I call a magic letter on a piece of paper for all of us, and that magic letter follows us the rest of our lives, I got an F in that first test of life. (laughs) So they wrote this F on the piece of paper. And I grew up in the South in the Bible Belt, where gender roles were very defined and very confining, actually, (laughs) and very limiting, right? You're in a small box. But one of the advantages of being born with an F is when you're young, you're allowed to be a tomboy as a little kid. And that's OK until you hit puberty. And then you're supposed to put on your dress and act like your girl and go to church. You I know, got the prom photos. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yes. And the big hair, you know, the big southern hair, because in the south, you know, we believed that the bigger the hair, the closer to God. <laughs> yes, I'm so glad you said that. Yes. Oh, yeah. I had it. And unfortunately, back then, I had my own hole in the ozone layer because we used Aquanet. We didn't know any better at the time, just like we laid on foil and put oil on and called for the sun gods. We didn't know back then, right? Ah, <laughs> uh, Things we wish we knew. <laughs> That's so true. But yeah, at four and five years old, I was given a real Southern Bell name, my given name. And at four and five years old, I started changing my name to a masculine name playing with other children. Now, the funny thing about that is my mom had me at 16, so my grandparents helped raise me. I'm just, you know, very grateful that they were there. I'd have probably been in the foster care system, and they were wonderful. And my papa was really my hero, and him and I had a couple of shows we watched religiously together, and they were old westerns, Gunsmoke and Bonanza. And uh, so the name I gave other kids I told him I was Matt Dillon, who was the sheriff in Gunsmoke, (laughs) because I ran around with little six shooters, a little cowboy hat, a little sheriff's badge, you know. (laughs) That's too funny. Yeah. And so my grandparents actually thought it was adorable when kids would come knock on the door and ask if Matt Dillon could come out and play. (laughs) So I didn't know how else to express what I was feeling inside. I knew I didn't fit the mold of what they were telling me. I knew that every time my grandmother tried to put a little frilly dress on me and the little frilly socks that you bend down and the little, you know, patent leather shoes that I was just, I mean, I loved my Nana, but I fought her on that, right? That was the thing. I fought,
0: I fought my mom on on those things as well. She did tell me that when I was going to make my first communion, if, I, if they had a pantsuit, she would have gotten it for me. And I was like, that should have been your first sign, you know? Yeah. Don't act all surprised when I come out to you when you told me that.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the word transgender wasn't even around yet. First of all. And I had zero exposure to the LGBTQ plus in in my Bible belt, little Southern Baptist world. Right. (laughs) Small town, Southern Baptist world. Right.
0: Definitely. I mean, and also, I mean, what we I think a lot of people fail to really um, remember is that the Internet is so new in terms of the proliferation of information. So even if you had wanted to know things and would have been able to get the exposure to them, it never would have been what's available today. So it really, I think, is important to acknowledge that even in what is, in the grand scheme of history, not very much time, so much has changed for people in the LGBTQ community for how we are able to access information and how we're able to expand our knowledge to certain topics, because part of it's just the access in general. And then there's the additional, like, how deep can you go on a topic and be informed in a way that's actually, I mean, factual, honestly.
1: (laughs) Right. And the internet gives you an ability to find community, even if you're in a small town. Totally. Right. And I didn't have that. I mean, none of us had computers. I was born in the 60s. We did not have that then at all. You know? And then when it finally came along, remember the first video game was just, right, that was it. You know, that was it, right? And we thought that was amazing back then. Yes, <laughs> yeah. the graphics, unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just a game we could play on the screen, you know, it was just totally amazing, right? Yeah, so I didn't have that way to find community. So so then one of the things that happened from four and five, changing my name to finding the martial arts at six, the martial arts actually gave me a space to be more masculine, to be myself. And it was celebrated there. And you wear pants.
0: (laughs) Yes. That's a smart move, Mac. I feel like that's a very subtle but very intelligent move.
1: I didn't really... I don't really think I planned that strategically, but I just worked found...
0: out great. <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, My little elementary school offered an after-school program, a six-week after-school program, and that's how I started in the martial arts. And then at the end of the six-week program, my teachers called my mom and grandmother and told them I was very natural and encouraged me to them to keep me in it. And I just took off with it.
0: That's really amazing, Mac. You know, I have a lot of respect for people who do martial arts, as I mentioned, when we had our first call, one of my really good friends growing up was very involved in karate. So I was able to see him compete a little bit. And Mm -hmm. I feel like one of the important things for people to understand too, is that martial arts is something that is very much a mindset as much as it is what you're doing physically. Could you Uh, share your thoughts on
1: that? Yeah, we call it a black belt mindset. It's the way you walk and hold yourself in the world. It's the way you deal with people, and you walk with a different level of confidence. You don't follow a crowd easily. You, you are trained in the martial arts as you go up through the ranks. Everything you learn, you have to turn around and teach to the belts that are lower to you. You have to help foster their learning, which of course helps solidify the things you've learned as well. You know, but it teaches you also responsibility that when you learn something. First of all, you give back with it, which is a great skill, right? And it just, it teaches you that knowledge is something to share. It's something valued. And we're all here to help one another's learning, which is just fantastic. It also teaches, I mean, with good instructors, you learn that the best way to win a fight is to not get in a fight. So if you can outsmart them, because you know what, I was always taught and I always taught my students. That if you have to get in a fight, it's very different from a competition, right? There are rules, there are mats. It's very different on the street. If you have to get in a fight, somebody is going to have a bad day. Somebody's going to get hurt. And I've never been the kind of guy that wanted that to happen or wanted, you know, that's not my goal in life, right?
0: Yeah, I understand that completely. I always say part of the reason I think I've never actually thrown a punch is because I actually lack the self-control. So it's like if I get to the point where I might feel like I want to take physical action, we've already gotten too far. So it's better to just get to a place where you can resolve that conflict or walk away from it.
1: Yeah, And that's another great skill that martial arts teaches you is such extreme self-control. I mean, this is my 51st first year as a martial artist. I'm one of the highest ranking cumulative martial artists in the world. Good
0: for you, Mac. I mean, honestly, what a commitment and how great is that to know that you've achieved it and also based on what you're sharing and just knowing some of your background that you've been able to. Contribute so much to other people's growth as well in in the process of doing that.
1: Thank you. You know, one of the other great things that martial arts teaches us is we've never arrived. We're still always we still always need to be a student, even if you're a master instructor. You still practice the basics, right? You still have things to learn, and that's a great. I think that's just a great skill or understanding to have because so many people get to a certain level and they think. Well, I'm the big cheese now, right? I don't you
0: know. In, and of in course, all aspects of life, right? And so, oh yeah, humility definitely. goes a long way.
1: Yeah. We make a joke in the martial arts that some people tie their belt and it pushes the air up to their head swells, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but as you said, we see that in many different fields, right? <laughs> I work in tech, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Humility is a good thing, right? And, and knowing that I can take care of myself, as you said, is not, I mean, that's a great thing to know and to have the confidence in, but I would say the best thing that I ever gained from my years in the martial arts is the relationships. When you train with people for that long and you have sweat together and you have bled together and you have, you know, you have overcome obstacles together, you've seen each other's you know each other's families. You've seen babies be born, marriages, people die. You've seen, you've gone through all these things with people you've trained with for that many years. So it's like a huge extended family. It's just, it's amazing. Yeah,
0: definitely. And I can understand that because I grew up playing sports. So you really, when you connect with people and I know all sports teams or athletic endeavors aren't like that, right? You, it really requires a sense of camaraderie to be built among those people and that you're in a community that fosters that for the group who's competing together, whether that's something that's more of an individualized sport like karate, but you're training Mm -hmm. together, or it's an actual collection of people who are on a field or court at the same time. It's a matter of really understanding each other and the circumstance and sharing in that together. And of course, it's always really validating when you come home with a win and right. when it isn't a W, you learn how to conquer those feelings of loss and managing your emotions around those things too, because it's a high and low experience depending on the day that you're having. And it really, I think, goes to show how being part of something like a, an athletic team or group is that we have... This innate desire to be part of something bigger, something that we can contribute to. And so, especially when you're younger, if you don't feel a part of something, it creates an ecosystem of people that you hopefully feel you can trust and confide in and show up as fully as possible. So you know, I'm curious for you because you were in, in this community of martial art. Is it martial artists? Is that how was referred to (laughs) I was like, is that right? (laughs) Um, So you're in this community of martial artists. And so were you primarily training with, with a female group for the duration of that?
1: Or was it co-ed? Yeah. The dojo I came up in was mostly guys. It was such a, it was such a, I want to say it was like a, an old boxing gym, in a way, it was that kind of atmosphere, right? Okay, yeah. And I mean, you know, so I was very—I got some male socialization, you know, because these guys—they didn't act any different for the handful of us that were female that were around. Yeah, they, you know, they burped out loud and did all the things guys do, you know, all that stuff. You know, they were just. It was like an old guy's gym and they, didn't, they weren't going to change their ways. <laughs> well, so that
0: that raises an interesting question for me, considering the nature of your organization and the concept of positive masculinity. Do you feel like at that young age that you were being exposed to and aware that you were potentially being exposed to toxic masculinity, particularly as a young female in a male dominated environment?
1: Yeah, I definitely was aware of it at some points. Like within the dojo I came up in, the guys were good guys. I mean, you know, burping out loud is not toxic, right? I mean, well, it may be toxic to the atmosphere, (laughs) depending on what they ate, but they were good guys. You know, they were good hearted guys. But in competition as a young person, you know, I was winning my belt rank division all the way up till I got my black belt. And at 17 is when I won the U.S. lightweight fighting title. And at that point, you know, I was 17, this long, blonde, Farrah Fawcett hair, you know, kicking for Jesus back then. <laughs> I had, you know, male referees that were famous martial artists. I'm not going to mention any names, but they were very well-known martial artists. If you're in that genre, you would know who they are. And they would do things like, you know come on to you offer you their room key to do you favors i mean there was some real toxic behavior and i felt like i had no power in that because if i reported them they could blackball me you know they could cause me all kinds of problems in competition and and of course i was a young female in a male world these were famous well known martial arts who hosted the competitions and yeah they had all the power so i definitely saw that
0: So I'm curious from your perspective, as you have grown up in that community and as you were going through your transition, which happened later in your life, can you share how your experience with sexism has actually evolved over the course of that?
1: It's been such a wild ride. I bet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So as that young person, what I did because I couldn't. I felt like I had no power to call it out. I did this Aikido stuff of trying to, you know, evade being anywhere alone with them or in any kind of a sticky place where they could, you know, have more power over me or where it could be dangerous physically. You know, and of course I was always also told by men in my life, no matter how many championships I won, I could win everything. I won the world championships where you're really good for a girl. Oh, yeah, that one hurts. <laughs> oh, my gosh. It makes, you know, it makes you want to smack somebody, right? I mean, but people use those qualifying statements for all kinds of people. You're really good for a heavy kid. You're really good for a skinny kid. You're really good. Whatever, you know, mm-hmm. you're short kid. You could go on and on.
0: Or even, you know, to your point, I even just think about, Oh, they're really emotionally aware for a man. There's things that I I feel like so often it's easy as a female to hear like, you're so this for a female, you're so that for a female. But, you know, I am guilty of it at the same point in time. And I mentioned that not to insult men, but because it's the reality. It genuinely, I think we get into this really conditioned sense of what those expectations are and to the point where we don't really even think about the fact that we're really being biased. It's those embedded biases that we have that we perpetuate almost unintentionally.
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. I heard a lady do this the other night on a TV show. A guy said something and he apologized for something and she went, oh, a man who apologizes? She goes, man, I was just, just like you're talking about, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it goes every which way. <laughs> right, exactly. And, you know, so I dealt with that. And then I owned my own dojo for commercial dojo for 25 years. And of course, you know, as a small business owner who I'm, I was like one of, the, I think there were only two female owned dojos in the United States at the time. Uh, The others that had a female co-owner were married and their husband was also the owner and ran the dojo. So so to run it by myself was a really rare thing. And I think both of us women who ran the only female-owned dojos were in Florida. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) so funny. Go figure. (laughs) Yeah, that's funny. But I mean, so I definitely put up with some stuff in that arena as well, you know. And now, and then, of course, once I transition, there's an in-between phase. Because you don't come out, you know, looking like this the day after you go to the doctor and get your first shot of testosterone. I mean, you don't pass like this. There's a, a couple of years it takes for all that to kick in and for, you know, all the changes to happen. And I have what you'd call passing privilege in the trans community now because nobody will look at me and know that I'm trans right away. Totally. And that's the luck of two things. One is your genetic makeup, which is the roll of the dice. None of us had any choice in that, right? We just oh, got, yeah. Not what we got, you know. And I, my size is of average. You know, I don't look too small to be a guy or too small boned. I just happen to be, you know, have the genetics that fit well. And then it's also having access to good medical care. Which I'm privileged enough to have. And so those two things together, you know, after a couple of years, you pass, but in that in between time, that's another interesting study of human behavior because people are extremely uncomfortable when they don't know which box to put you in.
0: You know, it's interesting that you say that. And I hadn't really considered this until this moment as we're talking about it. My wife and I did our first TikTok live the other night, and the amount of people, that thought I was a trans man surprised me. And I can't say it necessarily should. I look like the lesbian that I am. And I'm like totally fine with that. It took me a while to get to a place where I could own that and just be okay with it. And I said to my partner, you know, it's interesting because I'm not offended by it what I realize is that it, it pokes at a childhood wound that I have mm-hmm. from being bullied when I was little and being told I looked like a boy. It's l- like, I'm not offended if somebody thinks I'm trans. It doesn't yeah. say anything about me that people think that, but it's like my inner child is, oh my God, people can't tell, you know? And so yeah. I can, I know it's not the same. Yeah. I'm certainly not trying to create an experience, a perception of an experience that I don't have, but the closest I can get to relating to it is that sense of, okay, I have to defend my gender. Yeah. Or defend my identity, I should say.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it is a similar field, you know, it certainly is. And, but watching how uncomfortable people are when they don't know which of the binary categories to put you in is such an interesting study because they him haw around and you can see the Wheels turning and smoke coming out. You know?
0: <laughs> it's, what's it going to be? What's it going to be? Right. <laughs> and you know, actually, I read a couple of the articles that you wrote for the Huff- Huffington Post, mm-hmm. and you shared something that I presume a lot of listeners, including myself, haven't historically been taught or aware of. And so, you wrote. Many transgender men, unlike transgender females, do not choose to change the appearance of their genitals, which creates a life of constant explaining and limitations. You are a man with a vagina. And I pulled that quote because it really makes sense. And I would say that I probably would have assumed that would be the case. But I also feel it's a lot like asking lesbians, How do you have sex? And you're like, It's not like, why are you asking that? And so it feels invasive to ask a transgender person about their transition and Mm -hmm. especially the specifics of it without them being the one to prompt the conversation. And so as an educator, I thought it might maybe not feel as taboo to you, but I was curious what your thoughts were on how to have those conversations. So people who aren't educated can be and that we as a group who are not part of that community can be more empathetic and understanding and curious rather than judgmental?
1: Yeah, great question. Well, first let me address the reason that a lot of female to male trans folks do not have bottom surgery. The surgeries are not that successful. They've gotten a little better in the last few years but they tell you there's an 80% chance, for instance, you won't be able to have sexual pleasure. You, I mean, there's a lot. It's a big gamble. Well, that is a big gamble. And my wife and I have a wonderful sex life and don't want that to change. So I was like, why would I do that? Right? Valid. And yeah. When you have somebody who loves you as you are and you have a you know great sex life with them, why would you change that? Yeah. I don't have a problem with that, but I'm also a trans person who never, I viewed my body differently than a lot of trans people because gender dysphoria is a diagnosis that a lot of trans people get, which means you don't feel your body matches who you are. And in fact, some trans people hate their body so much, it causes them all kinds of depression. They can't even look at themselves. So of course, if you hate your body that much, it's hard for you to be embodied to have good a good relationship intimate relationship with anyone right
0: definitely i mean i even just knowing my own body image issues growing up as a teenage female and into my 20s still i mean let's be honest does it ever fully go away i don't know but the point being that when you don't feel secure in your own self it's hard to even project the confidence to make intimacy feel connected
1: well yeah because you have to be embodied to have healthy sex with someone, right? You have to actually be embodied. And it, so me as an athlete, my body was always a fine-tuned machine for me. It gave me a lot of opportunities and privilege. It allowed me to travel the world. So even though there were things I wanted to change about my body, I had a lot of respect for this machine I was given to walk this ride of life in because it's done a lot of great things for me, right? You've
0: made a count, Mac. I'm, I yeah. have no doubt about that.
1: Yeah. And so I didn't have the same, you know, basically detest test for my body that a lot of trans people did. And so that helped me as well, be able to walk that journey. Now, there are definitely things you shouldn't walk up and ask a trans or genderqueer or intersex person in public at a restaurant. If you wouldn't ask anyone else, I've had people literally walk up to me in public, very public places and ask me, if i got my cock yet i'll be flat out honest people are really awkward <laughs> about how they ask these questions yes. i had an 80 year old lady ask me that <laughs> at the symphony hall here in seattle yes when i was singing with the seattle men's chorus so i mean it's just it's just so funny how awkward people are but the curiosity is there and so as an educator, I speak to college groups all the time. And you know, I, I say this is your opportunity to ask anything.
0: I love that. I <laughs> that's such an incredible opportunity, too, for people, Mac, because opening the conversation is one of the most difficult things for people in general. It doesn't even matter what the topic is, honestly, but right. especially ones that are really sensitive. And having People who you can not only have that conversation with, but feel that you are safe to not be judged on either side of the conversation is really important because it is very much about that human connection. And to be tactful, to be respectful, to be, as I said, empathetic requires both parties to be open minded about that conversation and both parties to understand that they don't know what they don't know. And it, it's something that getting back to humility, it's like being able to be humble enough to know that you don't know things or to be humble enough to explain to somebody who doesn't know that like, they don't need to be condemned for not knowing if there was no other way for them to have that information.
1: Oh, for sure. You know? Yeah. So I'm an open book about that stuff. And I think, of course, it's interesting. And of course, people are curious, right? But nowadays, you can go on YouTube and you can see the surgeries. I mean, you can literally watch the surgeries be done, the sex change operation. I'm such, I can't even watch like fake things on TV without
0: going like this. So I definitely am not going to be YouTubing that later, but I will take your word for it.
1: So, I mean, there is information out there, right? And I would, one of the things I would say as far as asking these type of personal questions is not everyone that is transgender genderqueer or intersex has been called to be an educator and they don't feel they should have to educate everyone. And then it's all white people think that every black person they know should educate them on race. No, we should do our homework. Yeah,
0: definitely. And especially to the point we were talking about earlier, which is having the internet. If you want to know, go learn something. And if you want to fill in the blanks with conversation, then understand how to appropriately approach that conversation. Yes. Take a
1: class. Yeah, right. I'm doing a gender 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 101 class. I'm doing an online gender 101 class that I teach at colleges and corporations. I'm teaching all the recruits for Seattle Police Department. have to go through my gender class now. I love that. U.S. Border Patrol on this. I teach all over the world on Gender 101. And I teach all of this. And I'm doing it online for only $25 a person. You can go to my website and sign up for it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. And I think that this is something that really is important is interesting to highlight is mentioning that this is something that you're doing for law enforcement agencies too. This is a personally very hot topic for me because it has bothered me for quite some time that law enforcement doesn't have appropriate training in a lot of ways, particularly around trauma-informed care and understanding how to deal with the psychological Components of their job. So, this is really exciting for me to hear of your involvement because, especially in Seattle, with everything that sort of had happened in the last couple of years, it's great to hear that type of progress is being made and that the intention is there to make sure that there is a better understanding of the people in the community that police officers or border guards will be dealing with.
1: Yeah. You know, when you think about people that stop people and check their IDs. And of course, there's a lot of people in the trans and gender nonconforming community that their IDs aren't going to exactly match their presentation. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, that's something you don't even
0: think about. See, that's something I don't right. even think about. So many, I bet you so many people listening to this will not even have thought about that.
1: Yeah. And people in law enforcement without education right away think you're trying to fool them for some reason that you're doing something underhanded. Mm-hmm. And to somebody who's in this community, they're just trying to navigate this gender journey and it takes money and access to get all that stuff changed. And a lot of people just don't have it because, I mean, the poverty level in the trans community is really high. It's like, it's 39% or so. And of course, if you're trans and a person of color, it goes up even more. Or trans and a disability, we can go on and on. All that compounds, right, um, the the issues. So, I feel like that could be an entire
0: conversation in and of itself. So we'll put a bit in that for next time.
1: Yeah, but when I educate these officers about the disparities in the community and the access to get those things done, they had no idea. They absolutely had no idea. They just thought, well, you're trying to fool us. <laughs> no. And they also don't understand why the trans community and the LGBTQ community and the people of color are afraid of them to begin with. So, of course, they're going to act nervous. Well, mm-hmm. let's go back and we educate them about Stonewall. And there were a lot of trans people there. You know, <laughs> We can go on and on in the community about bad things that have happened with the police. And so, you know, giving, hopefully what they walk away with is some knowledge and some compassion and realizing that people in the community aren't bad people. First of all, most of them have never had a conversation with a trans person. They get to be with me for a few hours. And have a conversation, you know, it's easy to other people way over there, Mm -hmm. right? When you've never actually sat down and had a conversation with.
0: Uh, Honestly, and I feel so strongly that is one of the things that we are plagued by right now in society is the whole sense of otherness and really looking at these boxes that we put people into instead of the people themselves and the humanity of it. And it's like, we focused so much on putting people into their individual boxes that we forget that we're all actually in the same box and that's people. So if we could start there, maybe we could have, as you said, and I think that's the most important thing, more compassion for each other, because the compassion is what helps create the understanding and then actually activates people to make those changes, whether it's on a personal level or a broader societal level. And this actually segues into a question that I had for you based on. Another article that you wrote, (laughs) which was you know, you had spoken about the challenges you faced coming out to your stepson as trans, and you had mentioned. No one can really prepare anyone for the reality of transition. And so I was hoping that you could share a little bit more about that experience and perhaps offer some advice to listeners who might be going through a similar experience with that fear or anxiety of telling people that they love who they are authentically and showing up in that way.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's it's wow. It's a big deal, right? For anyone to come out. One of the things I always tell people is to get an inner circle of supportive people. You know, people that you know are there for you before you come out to other people that you don't trust or not sure how they're going to react. Have that inner circle. Tell them what you're going to do. You know, I'm going to go come out to my grandparents or whoever, you know, Friday. Can I? will you be there right after with me? And, you know, set that up so that you have that supportive place to go when you don't know how somebody's going to react.
0: Yeah. That's really good advice.
1: Yeah. That landing is important that you have a safe supportive place to land afterwards.
0: Yeah. That's a really eloquent way of putting it. I appreciate that and making sure that you, regardless of what the responses from those people that you still feel like you can have that space to emote about it, whether that's joy, sadness, or any emotion in between.
1: I agree. Yeah, totally. You need that space, you know, and just knowing you have that place to go afterwards, to be with those people that you know are there for you. It just even changes the way you feel about walking in the door to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah,
0: totally. So, with your experience, so you and your wife have been married, I think, for quite some time now, from what I had read.
1: Together, nine years.
0: Okay, nice. Yeah. And so, this was a relatively recent moment that you had with your stepson in the past few years. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He was in school. (laughs) And, uh, and it's really interesting. Actually, I ran for office in Seattle. I ran for Seattle City Council.
0: I did see that. And you know what? I was trying to remember because it was in 2017, right? Yes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: That was the year I moved to Seattle. I don't think I was voting in Seattle yet. So, okay. But it, yeah. <laughs> but I, I was like, I, did I vote for Mac? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: well, that would be cool. <laughs> I was the first trans person to ever make it onto a ballot in Washington State. So it was a big deal. And in that election, there was me and a gay Muslim man that ran, and we both got death threats, even in liberal Seattle. So just so you know, but before I announced my running for office, I was already a city commissioner and very involved in the political world here. You know, my wife and I thought, well, we better talk to him about this because that's Right.
0: Well, it's in your, it's by being in your life, it becomes part of his life. Oh
1: gosh, totally. And it's going to be a big talk being the first, you know, it was about that. I always got asked about that, you know, and does identity politics matter? Well, yes, it matters when you never see any representation of yourself (laughs) in a field. It matters. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So we talked to him and the interesting thing was kids, you know, they give you a lot of hope nowadays at least kids here, I don't, you know, so much know about kids back in the South still, but kids here for sure, you know, they're like, oh, that's interesting. And my, so what my stepson said at the time, he was like, well, that explains a few things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I thought I saw like some, you know, he, he put a few things together that he had seen that he was like "Mm," before. (laughs) And then he, he, one, it was interesting. Some of the questions he would come up afterwards and he, like later he'd come up and he goes, Does that mean you don't have a prostate? And I was going, Yeah, that means I don't have a prostate. (laughs) I mean, it's interesting some of the questions. He was a teenager, right? (laughs) Yeah. these things come out. I mean, now he's moved out of the house and on his own. But you know, it was just interesting, all the different things that would go through his mind. But he really didn't care. I mean, he had some curiosity about a few things. But the kids he goes to school with, and then I we talked to him about me running for office, that he should probably tell his friends before. Maybe the their news parents, test? their parents has, have it on the news or have it on the paper or whatever. And they find out, you know, without him saying anything, he said, okay. So he, you know, we asked him in a couple of days, you know, what do you think we actually talked about making a plan for him to tell his friends a couple of days later, we said, we'd talk about it again. And he said, Oh, I already told him. And they were like, Hmm, well, that's interesting. Want to go get a burger. They were just like, whatever, you know, <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, you said it earlier, we have to give some credit to this generation, right? There is a sense of openness and awareness that a lot of the construct that has been developed historically doesn't necessarily align to where we are right now as a society. And yes, to the note that you just made around, maybe that's not true in all places, but I think At a generational level, there is something profoundly different for people who are growing up in this day and age, probably in large part due to the proliferation of information and the sense of community that people can cultivate online through different mediums changes the way we interact with each other. Now, granted, there are echo chambers, there are people who are batshit crazy, that exists everywhere, there's no stopping it, but there is a place for people more now than there ever was before. And I love that your family was able to have such what sounds like a really seamless experience with that, especially at a point in time for you where what you were doing with your career and politically speaking was really monumental. And also just the weight of doing that in general to not have to carry the weight of something emotionally within your family that would have maybe disrupted your ability to really put all of your energy into that.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it helps that my wife and her parents, you know, my wife was raised by hippies. So, I mean, they just never had any problem with me being trans. They were like, you know, be who you are, man. It's all good. They're very open, you know, folks. So she wasn't raised in a religious background or a confining background like that. And I think that helped a lot.
0: Definitely. May I ask how long ago uh, you went or you began your transition, I guess? Uh, 2009. Okay. So, I mean, it's like 12, 13 years ago, almost. Yeah. So do you feel a sense of total acceptance now identify, identifying as male, or do you still find yourself, Unlearning some of the feminine mentalities that you were predisposed to prior to your transition, because that's that's a long time to live with a lot of societal pressure that's telling you you are female and that this is the world that you're living in and how you're treated as a female versus being a passing cis white male or cis passing. Is that I?
1: Well, I am cis passing, but I wave the flag high, so you know, which I appreciate. Yes. And my wife, she's queer, too. She's been bisexual and out since she was very young. So, you know, we laugh that some people look at us and think we're this like cis straight couple and it irritates us, actually. <laughs> now, of course, if we go to dinner and, you know, met her Georgia or somewhere, we might feel safer. <laughs> but, yeah. But yeah, we we don't really like being perceived.
0: <laughs> that that's totally fair because it it sort of undermines what you've sought for yourself in your authenticity being able to really be exposed to people in the way that you've desired for so long. So I totally get that and hopefully it didn't come off as offensive when I made that statement. I just mean more know. from from a high level, right? Theoretically, you look like you've got all the privilege
1: in the world. Right. Yeah. Until I'll tell you a story. I was teaching gender in, and then we'll get back to your question, your formal question. I was teaching gender in South Africa. A group invited me to come over and teach gender, and of course, it's actually dangerous there to be known as transgender. I mean, you could really be hurt. I mean, they will take you out and beat you, and you know, Mm -hmm. rape you, and do things like that that are not pleasant. And they advertised the gender sensei is coming, which is my nickname because friend gave it to me from marrying my history in the martial arts with me teaching gender and it was so uh, interesting that I taught for two and a half hours to this group about gender 101 about and let them ask a million questions. And then the group wanted to take me out to a really nice restaurant afterwards and so we get to this restaurant there's like a 20 minute wait. I had been teaching for that long so I had to go to the bathroom. You know, I've been standing up in front of people for that long where I couldn't go. I had to go. And we had like 20 minutes to wait for our table. I go in there and here's this that I could write a book on the experiences of being in different gendered bathrooms. And it would be a lot of comedy and some sad things. But (laughs) first of all, they're all gross. They're all gross. But
0: (laughs) yeah, yeah, I can. I can (laughs) attest to that. I mean, I've been in my fair share of male or uh, unisex bathrooms and I don't. You're correct. We're disgusting. Humans are gross.
1: (laughs) Yeah, humans are gross. I don't understand it. Anyway. (laughs) Anyway, this is a really nice, this is like one of these super popular, you know, four star restaurants there. And the men's bathroom only has one stall with no door and a trough for men to pee in. Literally a trough with ice thrown in it for men to pee in. I wasn't safe for me to go to the bathroom there. I can't walk in the women's room looking like this. They'll call security. I had to leave the restaurant, go back to my Airbnb to go to get a taxi to take me to my Airbnb, which was like five miles away, to go to the bathroom. So when people say there's certain privilege, yeah, there is as long as you are fully clothed. And anytime you have to do anything, go swimming. I mean, you could think about all the things, spas. uh, You could just, you could go on and on about experiences where you're questioning your safety, right?
0: I mean, of course. And that's a really good point, Mac. And I appreciate you sharing that story too. It begs the question just in general about why men's bathrooms don't have some semblance of privacy anyway. Like that's always just bothered me. I think it's weird. So when you were saying that, you were going to the men's room, I was like, oh, it was probably one of those troughs. And so it's like, ew, first of all. And second of all, the fact that you have to consider that and that you were lucky that you were in a scenario where you could get to somewhere where you were able to manage to depart from this situation and come back. But it's like, Just to live in that sense of it's not safe to be in your body in certain places or around certain people, it it really is unnerving. And I imagine it's like you, you can only prepare so much, right? You don't know every single situation you're walking into and how you're going to have to manage it. So it's being a little hypervigilant almost, I imagine, because you're trying to be mindful of like situations that could unfold before they unfold.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, even though I can fight and take care of myself, who the hell wants to fight your way out of every bathroom? No, (laughs) no. no. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I think that's just something that it's like, what are these seemingly small moments in people's lives have a really significant impact on the day to day quality of life when you're dealing with these mental gymnastics as you're trying to navigate the environment that you're in? and the people around you and what their perspectives might be because even just coming out as gay 15 to, oh my god no longer than that oh my god 18 years ago i don't know how old i am <laughs> and it's like i i used to have such a hard time i used to be very protective of that and feeling like how do i express it in a way that is still sort of lighthearted i don't need people to have a big reaction i just need them to know and so part of it is like this constant feeling of you have to come out you have to come out and I am curious, you know, as a trans person, is that something that you often feel as well because you are able to pass in certain
1: situations? Hmm, you know... I usually find a way to come out, <laughs> no matter what. <laughs> I usually drop a bomb. I don't know, you know, somewhere in there about it when people don't expect it. So I like, mean,
0: what? give me an example of that. Like, what's the way that you would say it? In, like, is it sort of casual in conversation and you're just, you know, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know how to ask the question. Did you you did tell you me. Read,
1: <laughs> did you read the article I wrote called Being a Trans Ninja? Uh, Because that is a really funny article that I wrote about the fact that I look like I look. And a lot of times I walk into situations, even here in Seattle, I walked in a place called Doghouse Leather, which is for leather gay men. It's like where they sell leather, you know, and and sex toys and things like that. Assless chaps. Yeah. yeah Ask those chaps. Yeah. I was getting ready for pride. Come on. <laughs> you know, needed some new chaps. You go. <laughs> I'm in there and these two gay guys are in there having a conversation while I'm looking through the sale rack. You know, these two guys are in there having this conversation. We were the only three in the store at the time about a friend of theirs that is going through transition and what they think about. It. And they were very judgy about it.
0: It's interesting.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a lot, as you know, within the LGBTQ community. I always say the letters are are half the time battling each other. You know, it's like the Oppression Olympics. Uh, is what I call it. But, but instead of standing together and supporting mm-hmm. each other, which would be a lot smarter, but but anyway, these guys were having this conversation, making all kinds of just well, I think you know, blah blah blah, and I think they should do this and they should do that. And I just interjected a few things into the conversation. Well, you know, because they they said all kinds of things about how they think hormone replacement therapy is unhealthy and all this, and of course, I just you know said a few thing facts. They were just stating opinions with no research, right? And I said a few facts about hormone replacement therapy and how it works and everything. And I never, ever came out as trans to them. But what I did was after I purchased what I was there to get, I left my gender sensei card on the counter and walked out.
0: (laughs) Stealth. I like that. I like that. (laughs) You know, and it's interesting, like you said, how we have our own lanes in the LGBTQ community, uh, for lack of a better term. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. 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 And it's, you know, we're collectively rallying for the community, but amongst ourselves, it can be a bit less of the camaraderie that you would hope for. And I don't think that's always the case, but I do feel like it perpetuates stereotypes a little bit across, across the community as well. I mean, I even said to my friend or my partner the other day that My one friend, Dustin, who's on an episode in my first season, and we talked about coming out. I said, you know, he was like the first gay man that I ever really liked because I always felt like, you know, I'm not a lipstick lesbian. I'm not a straight girl. The gay guys love the girls who are real straight or act real straight. And I just felt like I'm of no interest to you. I just annoy you. I don't fit in with this. It was my own judgment, my own preconceived steep notions of what a gay man would expect of me in a friendship and vice versa. And so you're continuously navigating the expectations of other people. I mean, we do this as human beings, regardless of gender, regardless of identity in any capacity. But I do find that when you're someone who does have a place in the LGBTQ community, that you're Trying to navigate that in your own right where like when you first come out, like what does that mean to you? And then as you're evolving in the community, what does that mean to you? And the alphabet mafia, as they call it, we're doing our best to be ourselves and also still embody some sense of community that maybe those personalities don't always align. I mean, not all straight people get along, not all gay people get along, not all queer people, you know, so... It's interesting how those dynamics can shift depending on the environment and the types of people.
1: It's so true. And I've had some interesting experiences within the community, like singing in the Seattle Men's Chorus, you know, where there's 250 guys in that group and, you know, 90 some percent of them are gay. And there's a small portion of them that will say they're bisexual. And then there's one straight guy who says he just likes to sing. But anyway, but anyway, even within that community, and they all knew I was trans because of who I am, right? I'm a very public person, right? And within, you know, just hanging out, and I have a lot of friends across the community, every letter, but just hanging out with those guys, they will a lot of times make derogatory comments about, vaginas and vulvas and you know they don't really think about the fact of how that affects trans people also how does that affect lesbians in the community and don't they all have women in their lives that they love mothers sisters nieces cousins you know come on
0: yeah I mean (laughs) it's a human respect thing too to that to that end and it was so interesting because when we were doing this live the other night the amount of trolls That we're just like spouting grotesque shit at us. And I'm more of a, of the mindset of you should get therapy by, but I think that when we really evaluate the way we speak about people, the way we understand each other, it has to be that effort to look inward first and ask ourselves, why are we creating these conversations or using that language or bringing up certain topics that. Maybe don't have a place with where we are. And I do think sometimes there's that whole mindset of, you know, you're talking about things to fit in or it's that like locker room talk concept. But at the same time, you know, there's plenty of other interesting conversations to have. And I'm certain that there are opportunities to dive into those and be more insightful and intentional and thoughtful rather than just shooting the shit and spouting off things that don't really provide any value to anyone and come across quite honestly as crass.
1: Oh, totally. Not only crass, what does it say about you if you have to cut someone else down to feel good about yourself?
0: Totally. And also, I mean, you do just (laughs) make me wonder like, Why is anybody saying vulva like out of context? Like, what's (laughs) what's, what's the
1: end game there? Don't you know that there are gold star gays and platinum gays?
0: Well, I know what gold star gays are. What's a platinum gay?
1: Well, well, first of all, for the audience, a gold star gay is a, a gay man who's never touched a vagina except when he was being born. Okay. Except he came through during birth. A platinum was born C-section. He's never, ever touched a vagina. <laughs> now, it's not, that's great, isn't it? It's it just like, made my you night. Know, it honestly did. Yeah. I can't
0: wait till I've been like, I want to keep having this conversation, but when <laughs> we are done with it, I that is the first thing I'm telling my partner.
1: <laughs> and it, But it's not that we haven't heard lesbians uh, ditch penises and we need to just stop doing that. hmm
0: For sure. Well, and I mean, it even gets to just language overall, like calling people pussies or whatever. It's like, I mean, okay, then call a man a scrotum. That's weaker than a
1: pussy. Give me a break. That Betty White quote, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Pussies are tough. They take a pounding. I love it.
0: I'm so glad you quoted Betty White, too. Uh, What a gem of a human, both of you. You and Betty White right up there. You know, I. And I think like one of the things, you know, as we're sort of rounding out the conversation here is speaking to that and the perception that people have and their willingness to be open in conversation. You had mentioned in one of the articles I read or possibly on your website that having a new gender identity does also come with some baggage. And that, for instance, if you are someone who transitions from female to male, you might have to overcome the fact that you have maybe women crossing the street at night from you. And so you, as a male, are inherently seen as more of a danger than a female. So is that something that you personally experienced? Or is that something that just through your time in educating and things like that, you've um, established sort of as a reality?
1: No, that's been personal experience that no one prepared me for. You know, one of the other things when you said about coming out I always recommend to people is to talk to somebody who's already done it and get, you know, get some mentoring basically about yeah. you know, from different folks that have done it. And, but it's the same thing trans in the trans community, I think, especially, you know, young trans people or people that are new to transition need to talk to some of us that have been through it because there's so much that you wouldn't expect. That's one of the things I wish somebody would have told me. I did seek out mentorship and went to some trans support groups early on. And it's something that no one talked about. The fact that I've experienced sexism in three categories, you know, that the female part, when I walked the first 42 years of my life, and then that in-between section. And then on the other side, there are things like I've spent my life teaching self-defense, teaching women and children how to protect themselves. I mean, I've taught in women's shelters, women's prisons. I've taught all over the world to help empower women. And then the first time, you know, walking in the evening and I see a woman walking alone who takes one look at this bearded guy and crosses the street, they hit me like in the heart, like an arrow, you know, like a ton of bricks. And I realize I've taught self-defense. I teach women to be careful because men are actually the number one predator to women. I mean, we just have to, I know the facts.
0: I mean, I know the facts as well. This is something that yeah. I'm well-versed in. It's honestly, it's terrifying as a female to live with that, that overarching concern, because you don't want to be somebody that is avoidant or disengaged, Yeah. but you also have to just inherently be it's more right. aware.
1: Yeah. yeah. More aware. You know, and I know that woman doesn't know my story and she doesn't know that I'd be the guy that would defender i'd be the other,
0: you know. totally if anything she'd be like here let's link arms i would like yeah, to walk with you <laughs> exactly
1: yeah exactly but that was hard to take it's also something that i've worked with and taught children since i was pretty young and i another thing that you may not know i graduated from clown school as well so i love kids i love playing with yeah, the the martial arts clown <laughs> anyway And I used to always be able to, if I'm in the grocery store line, there's a kid in the cart in front of me, you know, engage with that child, be silly, be Mm -hmm. clown, playful. Well, when you present female, you can always get away with that. Yeah. When you look like you're a silver-headed man now, you know, the mom or grandmother, whoever's always looking at you like, are you a creepy old guy? So there's that judgment that comes along that good guys get. Because mm-hmm. there's, because, of course, there's some bad guys that have made it that way for all of us. Now, if my wife is with me or a female friend, it's fine. I can do it then.
0: Yeah, there's a comedian, Eliza uh, Schlesinger. Have you ever watched her stand up? Yes. She yeah. does this bit about how women are inherently more trusted by really kind of all genders. But she speaks about children. She goes, as a female, I could go to. A children's playground in a hospital gown with a raccoon on a leash and the kids would be like, you have a weird dog, you know, and it's like pretty much the perfect statement to sort of indicate what the societal expectations are when it comes to a sense of safety around the different genders. And Mac, I appreciate so much your openness and willingness to have these conversations. Obviously, this is what you do, so you're clearly very comfortable with it. At the same point in time, this was a really new conversation for me in terms of a lot of what you've shared. And I'm so grateful for your time, your energy, your effort, and your passion around what you do and who you are. You showing up fully really to use the term, embodies what it means to be authentic. And I value this conversation and your story and your energy that you're putting forth into the world and the community so much. And I'm very excited for our listeners to hear this. And I really look forward to meeting up with you in Seattle or Vancouver yes, at some point.
1: For sure, for sure. I wanna say just one thing about, you know, what I thought about transition, you know, when I I got to the place where I had retired from competition and I was ready to tackle this, there was a little bit of a battle inside of me that thought, do I want to be a part of this group of people that have caused so much damage and hurt so many people? Because I knew the statistics and I'd experienced the sexism myself. And I heard my grandfather's voice in the back of my head. He had passed away. But my grandfather taught me many wonderful lessons of life. When we would go fishing, we would solve world problems together. (laughs) And one of the things he taught me was, if you want to create change, you have to do it from within. You can't stand outside of a group and point your finger at them and say, I hope they change. (laughs) You got to get in there and get involved. And he was that kind of a guy. And that was a very valuable lesson. And that was what told me what we really need is more good guys in the world speaking out and standing up and doing the right thing. So that gave me the green light to be who I am. Oh,
0: <laughs> that was such a beautiful statement, Mac, thank you for sharing that. I got goosebumps. i your grandfather sounds like an amazing human, and obviously you're you're so well spoken and empathetic in all the statements that you've made to be able to Hear that from you and know the contributions you've made both Mm -hmm. to the trans community, but also just globally and politically for such a number of people. It's really amazing to consider that ripple effect as well, because, you know, the people that you've directly impacted from your interactions. Just having had two conversations with you, I can tell you right now the impact that you've had on me will Mm -hmm. proliferate. So thank you for that because more people need it. And I just, I can't wait for this episode to drop and for people to hear more about you. And if you did enjoy this conversation and want to learn more about Mac and positive masculinity, you can check out positivity, sorry, positive masculinity Mm now.org. And there's a wealth of resources, services, and insights offered by Mac and his team. So There you go. And definitely check out his book. I've got to get it onto my shelf. I really look forward to checking that out. And hopefully we'll be able to discuss in person one of these days.
1: And let me just say that my book in the end of most chapters have worksheets for you to actually walk through the socialization you've had around gender and sexuality. Oh, I love it. And I'm in the studio right now recording the audio book.
0: Yes, perfect. (laughs) Well, definitely let me know when that's out. But I will be grabbing a copy of the book as well. I'm excited to read it and to also learn from the exercises that you have in there. It's something that is definitely going to expand my knowledge and by way of my need to tell people that they need to improve their lives, (laughs) they will also be hearing about your book. So thank you so much again, Mac. I really appreciate you. And I'm just so, so thankful that we were able to connect and share this episode together. Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side.